Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Starstruck creator and star Rose Matafeo about the BBC HBO Max rom-com and where the genre goes next. Square One Entertainment Chief Executive Al Montianu and former Yes Studios Managing Director Dana Stern on the German version of Israeli drama Your Honour. And Byron Perry, founder and chief executive of Southeast Asian digital content company Coconuts Media on the growth of premium docs and private equity funded programming. Starstruck is a comedy about a 20-something New Zealand woman living in London, working in a cinema, who after a one-night stand on New Year's Eve, discovers she slept with a famous movie star. Created by and starring Edinburgh Festival award-winning stand-up Rose Matafeo, the first season became a hit for the BBC when it debuted last year and has steadily been building a following worldwide, with HBO Max on board as US partner. Matafeo spoke to Nico Franks about how Starstruck gained momentum, her love of the rom-com genre and where it goes to next. Tell me a bit about how, you know, the experience for Starstruck season two. So you've been able to do that physically, whereas I suppose for the season one, you weren't able to. Is that right? Yeah, we weren't able to. I mean, everything was on Zoom, everything. Also, uh, you know, because we shot them so close to each other from from season one coming out and series two coming out, it was, yeah, it kind of almost felt like we hadn't made a show and put it out there. Do you know what I mean? In, ter- in terms of actually interacting with people on a thing like this, particularly in another country feels a bit surreal it's like you feel like you're making something in a vacuum until people start responding to it and um so yeah it's been like such a joy to be able to do press for it you know in person and still so surreal to meet americans who have watched it's so it's it must be a weird self sort of hating kiwi thing but i'm like but you're American. How, how could you be watching a show made by me and little old New Zealander? So yeah, it's 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 pathetic, but um, it's how I feel. But yeah, it's it's great. It's and how how was the experience making a show for two different buyers? I suppose so in HBO Max and the BBC. Yeah, it was it was. I mean, you know, I mean, two different perspectives um, in terms of uh, notes from channels. You know, but then they work together, which is great in terms of you know, it's it's not like you're never getting sort of conflicting notes like you know people at BBC and HBO Max would be working together to give a united front of notes that we would then take and, and um, sort of yeah use the show it's funny but though because I don't think I don't necessarily notice like taste wise or, or, or tone wise you know a difference in the type of notes it's more I, I do notice like a difference in reception I think with those two audiences rather than the creatives I think behind it yeah so the reception is can, can be there's can be different in both of those countries for sure I think it's lucky though for me being you know from New Zealand and Alice and now Nick uh, who you know the other writers being from not from either of those countries kind of helps with the sort of more it helps like when you're creating a more like a less it sounds strange but like less specific show where it's like your kind of specific reference cultural references to particular countries like we wouldn't be putting in there because obviously we're not I mean some I do put some New Zealand things in there but yeah, we're out of context in those countries anyway. So it's kind of like you're already adapting what you're writing to an international audience because we're an international audience. If that makes sense. Yeah, you can kind of take a step back, or you've already kind of you've you've already taken a step back. T- totally, yeah. It's not like we're making um the most British of all rom rom coms or American, but definitely not New Zealand either. We've made a neutral one. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in 
in how those relationships are kind of evolving. And I think there was a time when if a US buyer was involved in a UK show, they'd be trying to kind of crack, especially if it was filmed in London, you know, you'd have to have a, a London bus and stuff like that. And there is, there are buses in. There are a lot of buses. And that's that, what really wasn't intentional. There's just a shit ton of buses in, in London. Yeah. <laughs> I think there is a, possibly a sort of perception of, of what London is that from Americans, um, not necessarily from channels, but like even just from audiences, it always reminds me of um, We Britain and Arrested Development, you know, the, so, like, I was like, that's what I always think about when like people's perception of what London is or the UK is. And I think there are definitely, yeah, there are definitely things where we go, oh, that's not realistic or anything like that. But but honestly, we've been pretty pretty lucky with um, people who trusted us just to make the best thing we could make and not pushed us into going, you know, oh, you should do this. I mean, it's kind of maybe the, the advantage of not being a, a high, the super high budget prestige comedy drama, whatever thing is there's more freedom to like do your own thing. It feels, yeah, differently. We had a lot of freedom with that. And yeah. so as well as BBC in the UK and HBO Max in the States, it's available in lots of other countries be it through Avalon's distribution deals. And that's quite a kind of traditional way that it's been sold. You know, I, I feel like the industry is becoming so used to, to, and comedy in a lot of ways, you know, the Netflix or the Amazon model where it's immediately available everywhere. Do you have a kind of preference or you know, when you speak to other comedians, do they have a preference? I think um, there's merits to both. Like, you know, obviously the wild advantage of releasing it worldwide, same drop date at this, you know, everywhere is that the exposure you get on and you know the the impact you get is like immediate it's 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 available to everyone it's available to everyone on platforms that is available in every country etc cetera, etc cetera, all of that i think it's really worked for starstruck to be honest because for the first series to come out and it you know so many series it's one week and then you know it goes off everyone's radar and nobody knows what that show was the, the fact that we had a sort of staggered release i guess from the uk then to the us and then to different territories throughout the world throughout the year i mean that new people were discovering it uh, all the time small amounts very small amounts of people were discovering it but it meant that it you know for us especially for a six episode series that was all dropped at, at once you know it wasn't a week-to-week release it kind of a kind of um, engineered a, a slower like a, a weirdly slower release on a bigger scale country wise and it meant that yeah new pockets of people around the world were discovering it as it became available to them and that I think was a massive help with it to create sort of some sort of um, cushion of I wouldn't say hype but you know an interest in it when it dropped in, in, in America and then yeah it just extended beyond the period of time you assume you know these things that get talked about it, it, it went on for a year and then it kind of I was always I always joke it was like People like always put it on like hidden gem lists and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it's never intentional. No one intentionally becomes like a cult film or like, you know, like a hidden gem. But, but that's, um, it's been nice because it has been genuine word of mouth, you know, um, in places like particularly America. Um, I'm a person who is very old school and really enjoys traditional models of TV, you know, but I sound like a dinosaur because it's just that how the world's changing. But, I need to be, I need the flow of television or at least the flow of something to tell me what to do because I, otherwise I won't watch it or I'll watch it all at the same time and I'll feel bad. So, so yeah, I can't say what I prefer. I, for, as a viewer, I like it being parceled out. As a person who makes the thing, I don't mind, but it's been really amazing to be in control of distribution like that. It's been really very rare, I think, as well. 
And do you get the sense that, well, not just British and US or North American comedy audiences are kind of talking to each other more, but just international audiences in general kind of using social media? Yeah, it's a very, it's a pleasure to like, <laughs> like see different tweets in different languages and be like, oh, okay, great. It's dropped in that country or that country. And yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's such a pleasure. I I'm, I'm have to, you know, sometimes Google translate it to know that, you know, they're not saying talking massive shit about me but apart from that it's all it's all been relatively positive and uh you're obviously you're a cinephile so in terms of streamings streaming i think has had a very positive effect on television on cinema the kind of jury's a bit more out i suppose people were at home anyway when they were watching telly how do you feel about streaming's impact on cinema and kind of that line between tv and cinema blurring more you know i mean not great (laughs) but that's just because i'm a fan of the sort of the rich of of going to a cinema and I understand that I don't know whether or not that's antiquated or feels like you're a dinosaur but as just a fan of going to a certain place to see something and and believing that changes your experience of watching it you know I think personally I'm like oh that's gutting because you know drive my car was an example you know recently I was like I saw that in the cinema and you know I don't have a the, for for a person who's a fan of films who doesn't have the largest attention span, particularly because it has been eroded over the course of you know me being on the a child on the internet and my <laughs> attention span being shot to shit. Um, drive my car, I was like I loved so much, but I loved it because it was I saw it in cinema. Like if I watched that at home, I just think it would have been a more distracting experience. I don't think I would have been. It just it was. It doesn't you know it was an actual cinema theater facilitates a better experience for watching a film like that three hours you know and maybe i could be more disciplined at home and be able to watch those things but but yeah i mean i do think though it's 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 obviously streaming with cinema it's it's really helpful to and great because more people might see your films and you know you're not like beholden to like the classic nightmarish it sounds cinema distribution sort of you know rigmarole uh so it's probably empowering for a lot of filmmakers and stuff but um i do hope that they still bigger streaming services and stuff you know still push for cinema releases and i always actually do like even like with netflix you know like with a lot of netflix stuff i try to see it in the cinema you know instead of online because i also like going to the cinema alone and not having anyone talk to me and have no distractions that's fun how about so the live comedy circuit? Because am I right in thinking so Starstruck kind of came about because of Horn Dog and because that was on HBO Max and the BBC? Is that fair? Yeah, I mean it's um it was more more the live show I think maybe that was sort of um a help. I have no clue with what what they would have done you know had had I not done that show with Starstruck, but. It definitely was the, the thing that opened doors to those meetings and being able to pitch to BBC and, and that. And um, yeah, because it was the, but the pilot was already commissioned as a script, um, just a script pilot with the BBC when I was doing Horn Dog. So it didn't, it was actually um, my show before that, that probably was, you know, open the conversation to what I could write for myself. So then I worked on writing the pilot while I was performing Horn Dog in the year of 2018, 18. Yeah. And then Horn Dog, I did it at the Fringe. HBO Max came on board for Horn Dog, and then shortly after, and then all throughout that process, you know, the script got to a point where we did, a, we shot a pilot, then we got that. I don't know whether or not they commissioned the full series pre or post to me doing Horn Dog and getting uh, done with HBO Max, but it was all very much, you know, happening at the same time. 
And how are you seeing the kind of live comedy circuit rebound after the pandemic? I mean, the Fringe is back this year, which is exciting, you know, and I and I think it's going to be back in a pretty significant way, which is very cool. I mean, yeah, there's more gigs now. There's more like gigs during the summer that I'm desperately writing material for so I can go and hang out with my friends. It's it's good. It was a pretty tough time in the pandemic I think for lots of people who did like you know that was their main their main source of income was you know live performance which was the hardest for, for them and I was really lucky to be in a position that I wasn't uh, relying on that income as like you know my my job because I had been able to work on this TV stuff and I wasn't doing festivals for a bit so um, I was super lucky it was very hard but I think it's coming back which is very cool slowly but, but it, it'll be back it's good do you get a sense that audiences taste have changed since the pandemic at all um not i don't think so i think if anything audiences are really excited to be back at live comedy shows i think they don't want to talk about the pandemic it's so funny everyone thought that everywhere like even comedy or television or anyone in a writer writing capacity was like oh no this big thing's happened to us all we're going to want to talk about is pandemic and it just turns out no humans actually really like to compartmentalize and distract themselves so anything that uh that takes them out of sort of you know the the overwhelming experience of living through a global pandemic is is a joy and i think that's uh, that's definitely why i think um people responded to starstruck quite strongly and and that uh it it was just a nice thing to watch definitely during a period of time where everyone was locked down and inside their houses it was kind of a fantasy it almost was a sci-fi to watch you know for sure yeah yeah yeah, there was a purposeful kind of decision not to reference the pandemic in the show Mm -hmm. i think a lot of people made those decisions actually like i was just watching cheaters the other day and i was like oh yeah there's no there's no pandemic stuff here and so it was yeah it was kind of just a Definitely, because it was just, you know, I don't want to write a rom-com in a pandemic, so someone else can do that. It'll be fine. <laughs> and how do you see the rom-com genre evolving over the coming years? I was talking to my friend Alice about this, of like, it's interesting to see a genre that was so, and then, you know, when I was growing up in the 2000s stuff, it was like a, a true blockbuster, you know, cinema experience the rom-com you know studios put a lot of money behind you know these rom-com leads that they'd kind of groomed to become these you know romantic comedy leads for all of these years and stuff and i think that's fallen out of fashion a bit in the in the in in the future where we now live um (laughs) which is which is a shame and then like something like marry me came out and you're like oh this is like a real you know classic big budget you know hollywood rom-com and then it's interesting i just it's weird that but but it was still casting two people who were like massive stars you know it's not like anyone's or these studios are making new stars that would be you know the heroes of rom-coms that i you know grew up with so it's migrated to television a bit i think because all those people making the tv or, or streaming all those people are the people who grew up up on those rom-coms have taken all of the influences of that genre and then now kind of almost made a it's like an homage all the all of, all of the rom-coms now are kind of homages to and, and rom-coms are like all rom-coms are homages to the rom-coms that came before them whether it was like the 40, 40s or 50s or whatever so i think it's um it's migrated to a different platform i guess um which is cool because i think it gives you know something like starstruck would never have been a greenlit for a, a, to be a film do you know what i mean it's TV is the only place where that kind of idea could have been made or flourished or yeah, um, this space, this space is made for TV. It's not made for (laughs) movies yet. And how about rom-com remakes? Where do you stand on those? 
I don't know. Is there is there a trend for rom com remakes? I don't know if it's true, but um, on um, Dubois, the gossip website, the gossip Instagram account that I follow, they were like, they teased that there'll be a, a, when a Harry Met Sally remake, and I was like, I don't know if it's true, but I was like, oh god, <laughs> that'll be that'll be strange. But they're not. Lots of rom coms are remakes in a way, but they're like you know, you've got Mail as as Shop Around the Corner and Sweet November is Sweet November, but that's a terrible, terrible film. Uh, the newer one, but the old one is good. And yeah, there there are a lot of uh, rom com remakes. I think of the rom coms I grew up on. I don't. I'm just not a fan of remakes in general. I think it's. Uh, it depends on what the remake is and if you reimagine it. Because I think you've got Mail. It's like I. I think it's a great. It takes the crux of that story and changes the context in a way that is kind of almost unrecognizable from the sort of source material, which is. I think a better thing to do. But I think remakes are made now, not with the intention of, oh, that's a good story that would be great now. It's actually to, to basically get the free kind of um, nostalgia coin of going, oh, look, this is, remember this film you like? Here it is with the same name and maybe like less good because it's taken, put into a completely different context, but trying to still do the things that now make no sense because it's been taken out of context. And, you know, so I think, I'm so I'm very I'm slightly cynical about you know when they're just kind of banking on nostalgia really and I say that and then 20 years when they make remake Starstruck I'll be like it's great I'm exec producer I'm getting I'm getting my coin this is <laughs> a wonderful idea <laughs> and finally in terms of New Zealand exports and New Zealand film and TV how do you see that evolving and also potentially kind of reflecting because when I was in New Zealand I was writing so much about the push for more indigenous representation on screen and off screen can you see international audiences getting more of a sense of lots of different sides of New Zealand and Aotearoa you know New Zealand yeah I mean, I think a bit. I mean, people still correct me on how I say I'm Samoan. They're like, oh, Samoa in this country. So, you know, it's a, it's a way to go. I think there, I mean, I think people like Taika, you know, I, I, I do a lot of work for that. And producers like, you know, Kathy Neal and Morgan Wado and, you know, people back in New, New Zealand who are making, the, the, I think the, there are producers in New Zealand, though, who have got their right priorities of, of making stuff about, people from New Zealand in New Zealand. But then like Taika, you know, with making something like Reservation Dogs or something, like he puts his name behind things that I think are celebrating and honoring the, you know, indigenous communities of the places that they are at. And so it is it is cool, I think. But yeah, it's a funny thing. It's like it's I don't think it's necessarily about exporting our culture to places like England. It's probably maybe an inspiration for those countries to explore how they can support and amplify the voices of their own indigenous communities, I think, you know, and you know, somewhere in the UK of like, you know, examine, you know, how many uh TV productions are about how many <laughs> how many white people are in this, how many working class stories do you hear, except you know. Uh, and and you know applying it to the context of your own your own country and um so i don't know if that's an answer to your question but yeah i've managed to i just see i just see my involvement in the uk television industry as a uh, revenge for colonizing our country so I'm, I'm i should be allowed to do it rose matafeo speaking with nico franks Israeli drama Kvodo tells the story of a respected judge on the cusp of promotion when his son gets caught up in a hit-and-run accident that embroils him in the empire of a local crime lord. 
The series was remade as Your Honor for Showtime in the US, starring Breaking Bad's Brian Cranston, with the German version debuting this month via ARD, an Austrian public broadcast counterpart, Orf, with Sebastian Koch in the lead role. The series is a co-production between Germany's Square One Entertainment and Austria's Mona Film Production, with the former having secured rights from Israeli-based Yes Studios. The latter's former managing director, Dana Stern, who stepped down earlier this year, and Square One chief executive Al Montianu spoke to Ruth Laws about the show and the challenges facing scripted formats in the age of streaming. The German adaptation obviously takes the same premise of a uh, judge who tries to save his boy's life. It differs insofar as it has real German uh, and Austrian cultural specificity. Uh, it takes place in Tyrol, which is in the middle of the mountains. We deal with a Brennerpass, which is a um, the f- First and foremost, a passageway of drugs from Italy into Europe. And we deal with a clan and a very Austrian institution business organization that seem to be pinned up against each other. And then sort of in the narrative, uh, we've decided to take a couple of liberties and have some people stay alive while others pass away. And we we move and, and rejig uh, a couple of instances of, of where we unveil what. So in totality, I would say, if you see the German adaptation in comparison to the Israeli and the and the American, it, it feels quite different. And, and what's your take on that, Dana? Well, I've only seen the pilot of the German version, but so I can't tell you how it unravels. I think the first part of it is essentially the same. It's got the same engine, the same heart, the same obviously instigating incident, um, but it's it's got a whole different look and feel to it. And I think Al should probably explain a little bit about the actual production, but it's absolutely gorgeous. And it takes place, you know, in the Tolian Mountains. So obviously there's a lot of snow, which... I can guarantee it was not part of the original version. <laughs> can you tell me a bit about the production then, Al, and how that went? Yeah, no, I mean, the, 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 when I initially, I was in Tel Aviv and I called uh, Donna because I saw an article or a poster. You sent me two episodes and I said, okay, this is, this is clearly uh, adaptable and it's the, the, the theme of it is so universal that uh, we must use it. And my initial thought, and that was interesting, my initial thought was we should move this to Berlin and have it sort of big city. And then the more we began the development and I called some Sebastian Koch almost immediately said, because we, we had worked together on a, on a different film. And I said, you can't say no. I have the ideal role for you. You're in. Can't say no. Uh, he agreed. And then as we began the development of it, it became sort of apparent that the beauty of it was that it's not big city, but there it's a little smaller. So we moved it to Innsbruck, which is not Vienna, which is a smaller town in Tirol in, in Austria, where theoretically a judge knows the police officer, the police officer knows uh, the the, the, the entire system and it's quite small and contained and yet has political ramifications to Vienna. And with that idea, we went to the Austrian broadcaster ORF and sort of created a German-Austrian uh, co-production with Mona Film uh, that were our co-producers in, in Austria. So you, so you located it, parts of it in Austria first and then you took it to the Austrian broadcaster or did you always have it in mind that it was... No, it was when we thought about it and said, where could it be? And then it, during the financing process, we spoke to the the Austrian 
broadcaster. And sort of one thing led to another. And then before you knew it, we, we were situated in, in Innsbruck. And what's your version of how uh, your honor landed in Germany? <laughs> it's pretty close. But, you know, to be fair, it was 2017. So I think that makes it five years almost to the day or, or maybe even when we're taping this, it is the day. But I, Al and I knew each other from way back when I used to run acquisition. Al himself is a feature film distributor and buyer. And we used to meet, you know, on the kind of acquisition circuit, really. We knew each other socially. And I'd been trying to get him to come to Tel Aviv for a long time. Finally, he says to me, okay, the kids and I were coming to Tel Aviv and Passover. Of course, that's when I had to go on a family trip. So he was in Tel Aviv. I was away in Bosnia. And um, I kind of texted him, said, what's going on? I said, well, it looks like I have to go to Paris. I think uh, we're going to win a big award at Series Mania. And I, I wasn't even going at the time. I, my colleague Tal went with the show and he said, what for? And I said, well, we have a show. It's really good. He said, is it really, really good that I should, you know, watch it now on vacation? And I said, yes, it's that good. And to your credit, you did watch the first two episodes immediately. And he texted me within like two hours and said, we're going to make an offer on this. This would make a great remake. I actually think there's a lot of, you know, things, many, many of the things that we do actually start this way, start by these friendships and these collaborations that we have and producers that we know and people that we trust. And then we tend to kind of work with them over and over again. I, I think that's something that's really apparent in our industry, that familiarity first and then work later. I've, I've had that happen many times where, you know, you're just friends and you like the person, you like their sensibility, you think they're going to be great for something. And then you spend years and years looking for something to do together. It always happens at the end. Uh, but in this case, it was kind of like that. We were friends and weren't and then yeah and then we fell in love so it's kind of like that but Donna's absolutely right it's it's the notion of having the same vision being entirely collaborative throughout the entire process because I mean let's face it development financing cast is everything nothing is easy and and she's been unbelievably supportive throughout and uh you know it, it took it took a good five years um and Donna what, why did you think aside from your sort of friendship with Al why did you think that your honor would work well for the German market first of all I knew nothing then I will be the first to admit <laughs> I think Your Honor was probably my third format sale at the time. To be fair, all three went to series and obviously many, many others since then. So I guess I, I had, I have good instincts, but you know, it was very nascent. It was very early days for us at Yes Studios. I was just segueing from, you know, acquisitions and the executive position doing, you know, overseeing programming and content at a broadcaster and kind of segueing into production, distribution and sales. So what did I know? Honestly, I just went with Al, A, because again, we knew each other and I trusted him implicitly, but also he was so passionate about it from the get-go. He was obsessed. Like he was a man on a mission. And now I can say, and you have many, many formats later and, and, you know, 10 adaptations of your honor, but certainly over, I want to say at least 30 formats, forget options, like actually in production or that have aired or are going to in production um, over the last kind of five years. That's what you look for. I mean, when you look for a partner, it doesn't matter what the name of the company is or, you know, what they've done before. It's really that person, that executive that you know you're going to be walking with hand in hand for years to come. And it's that. It's, it's like looking for a partner and do they have the stamina, the endurance, the passion for the project that's going to sustain it. And also, I've got to say, I mean, I don't know if we're going to get this tip, but you, you want to know they're going to be there. There's so many changes in the market and so many executive changes, so much consolidation going on in the last few years. You know, you want to have somebody you know is going to be there for the time it takes and it takes. 
time. On average, it takes three years. And this is based on format. Forget actual development from scratch. On average, it's a three-year project. The other thing um, you mentioned, Al, was that you've got Sebastian Koch and a generally a great cast attached to um, your honour. You mentioned that you, you, you sort of had a long-standing relationship with Sebastian. And I just wondered how easy it, it is in this day and age to secure talent, particularly with talent inflation and competition from you know streamers and other producers? Uh, it's not easy at all. I mean, m- my journey with, with Sebastian actually began in an elevator in, in Toronto when uh, he was shooting Die Hard 5, I think it was. And we became friends. And then uh, we, we worked together on a German film of his called Das Wochenende, The Weekend, which we released theatrically. And we stayed in touch uh, over the years. And from Series Mania, I remember when it when it won, I called him. And I called him once from Tel Aviv and then another time exactly from Series Mania. And he was, I have to say, instrumental uh, initially in the development process. He's he he, he knew exactly h- how he wanted to play uh, Judge Jacoby, and we walked down that path uh, hand in hand uh, with Donna o- over the years. But in short, it, it's not easy at all to get cast, and it's a matter you know it's the same same as with writers. You wait, and if you want that talent, I, I've learned over the years, and it's become my mantra. I think you're better off waiting for that talent than to uh, go elsewhere. And it, the the minute sort of I anticipated that he played the lead, I couldn't think of anybody else. So, um, you know, <laughs> that, that was that. And then with him uh, came other fantastic talent, you know, Tobias Moretti, uh, who plays his counterpart, or, or Paula Bea, who was from Bad Banks, or, or Sasha Gatt. It's just a, a stellar group of German and Austrian actors that we were able to um, get together for this for the show. And this is for both of you. Um, what is it about your honor that makes it work so well as a format compared to um, other dramas? I mean, the premise is really simple and relatable and universal. And I, I don't use that word. You know, it's not a great word to use because everybody uses it all the time. But it really is. You know, it's a it's a father's love for his son and his willingness to do everything in order to keep him safe. And that's, you know, as wide as you can get. So I think that aspect, plus it's a murder mystery or a crime mystery. There's a lot of twists and turns. There's just a, many things about it that, you know, people obviously or, or countries and broadcasters and producers from all over the world are related to it. We've sold it everywhere from Korea to the United States and every country in between. Um, some are second seasons like India's and just aired a second season, all the major European territories, uh, Spanish speaking as well. So it's really gone far and wide. The Turkish version just launched um, a couple of days ago. So really, really far and wide. And I think it's it's that. It's that simplicity in the premise and the you know narrative twists and turns and the emotions that come with it. Uh, I have nothing to add other than the fact that you have a main character that is highly ambivalent and does the, does the wrong things for the right reason in an effort to save his boy's life. And you would always, you always, you know, find yourself asking, you know, would I do the same? You know, would I take it upon myself to go that far, and uh, the li- the likelihood is actually yes. yes. So it's, it's 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 highly highly relatable, particularly if you're a parent, to go down that path. Yeah, I will say, and, and this is an anecdote which I kind of like because we all think we're so global, and you know we can cross borders and content travels and can adapt everything anywhere, and you know the world is our oyster kind of thing. But one of the feedbacks that we got for your honor when we sent it to you know an agent in China who sent it around to some producers was quite interesting in which he said to us uh this will never work in china because we have no corrupt judges Hmm. (laughs) and we're like okay (laughs) 
<laughs> We're like not going on that road. Okay. So it's universal to an extent. Extent is China. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. And what do you think of the market for scripted formats these days, particularly when audiences are more and more keen to watch the original show? Well, are they? Um, look, it's 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 something that we, especially dealing in you know uh, international scripted and being international producers and working in languages other than English, we like to tell ourselves that everybody is now. You know, there's room for foreign language drama and the streamers have certainly, you know, brought us there quickly launching a global service, having the ability to choose your dubbing language or subtitle language um, shows that hit everywhere in the world at the same time that technology that that has come aboard, how easy it is to discover content or relatively easy to discover content. But in essence, they're always going to be different. And you can never compare something that's entrenched in your language and culture and history and references and relationships to something that's an export. So there's always going to be room for both. I wish some of the people who are actually licensing and airing these shows would agree with me, but I think an audience, you know, it's very rare it just hits a different type of audience. Somebody who's going to watch a certain, you know, subtitle show on Netflix is not going to necessarily be the one watching at home on, you know, ARD on a, on a linear or an on-demand, you know, service. They're, they're going to be different, but even if not, they might check in to see the, for curiosity's sake, another version. But once a format is licensed, it becomes a local show. It, it's, it's so different from the original and that's a good thing. And that means somebody's done their job extremely well. Um, so the, the problem, is is not that I think there's audience for both I think what's happening right now the way the streamers are looking at many of the adaptations is they don't want to have other versions unless they do it them- themselves then they're super fine with it but certainly if you're a third party and uh, you're trying to do multiple versions of scripted shows in areas of the world you're getting a lot of pushback from the producers saying you know we hear a platform's not going to license this if it is available on another streaming service in some other country in some other language it's some point in time they won't touch it which i think is a shame so that's all my little cry out for you know sanity in our little neck of the woods um i think there's definitely room for all and again when the streamers do it there's no problem i mean you know they're they're doing two other versions of uh, castle de papel right now netflix is doing you know in korea and in india so it's okay if they do it but it's not great if we do it so there's room for for all so it it can be a bit tricky with rights then if you've got the original and then adaptations in in sex is it a bit difficult to sort of manage? It's and bit, it, it becomes really dicey. Not only do many want to hold back the original in the territory, which to some degree I can understand, but they also want to hold back other versions. So they want to make sure that the American version doesn't air or the French version is not available if, say, you know, you're in Germany. A case in point, I mean, this year in some miraculous turn of events, and, you know, we can thank COVID for all the production delays. In France, the French version on TF1 aired at the same time as the American version with Brian Cranston aired on Canal Plus. And the TF1 version, you know, got the numbers that a TF1 show gets and totally unhurt by the original. And it was, I believe, um, Canal Plus most successful acquisition of the year so you know they both kind of coexisted so it's largely streamers the ones that are difficult so say in theory streamers didn't exist and you were just selling into local broadcasters it'd be much easier to everything is difficult because essentially a- 
as a distributor in this case, you're not selling directly to a channel. You have to go through a producer and the producers don't know who the end buyer will be at that point. So unless they have you know a brief or a deal at, at a certain channel or streamer, they won't know. So they want to make sure all the rights are available in case it goes to a screamer who in theory is going to want those rights available or held back. It takes a lot of time, unfortunately, and it's it's not pragmatic. It's mostly theoretical. And there's definitely audiences for all versions because have they you, become local. They become a local show. Have you had any sort of issues with rights or anything like that, Al? I mean, you know, uh, Donna and I discuss it all day long and, and, and negotiate it to death. It's like a, it's a Rubik's Cube, quite frankly. But at the end of the day, you need to make it work. And there are some concessions you can make and others you can't. But when you know what the lay of the land is and what every broadcaster de facto needs, and the holdbacks, etc. You can adhere to it. It's only when you go into it blindly that you know you need to anticipate what happens down down the line. But ultimately, quite frankly, you know, a good story is a good story, and and broadcasters and streamers will respect. You know, if the if the quality is 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 great, they'll respect the the other versions down the line. I just wondered what you think the major trends are in scripted programming at the moment. Are there any sort of emerging genres or territories? Well, territories, are, I think, are kind of obvious to all of us. We're all looking, you know, to Korea. Israel has been relevant and is extremely relevant still. I, I believe I just saw this amazing slide at Series Mania, which had us as the second biggest supplier of scripted formats in the world or in the U.S. for sure. So that's kind of mind boggling considering our size. That's as far as where people are looking at you know, depending on your market. I mean, Turkey is great. Japan has been interesting in some of the scripted shows that they've been doing and have been adapted, um, usually in the Middle East and um, in Asia. But um, I think that's certainly something that's going to be around. It's really hard to say because trends take a long time. This business is, you know, these productions are like many companies. They take a long time to get off the ground and hit. So it's hard to say, you know, you're discussing one thing and then five years on, it's on air and suddenly that's a trend. So I, I can't honestly say what that is. I know what I'm looking for. You know, somebody who comes aboard, he's a creative or executive producer on projects. I'm looking for fun things, you know, worlds that I haven't seen or if they are. So if they are crime or traditional crime, they have to have some kind of humor to them. Um, They have to be tongue in cheek. They have to be lighthearted. I don't want to see anything too dire and too serious. That's I think that's a general rule of thumb, all of us coming out for the last couple of years that we've all. Um, sure. <clears throat> I, I think lighthearted and, and tongue in cheek is, is the right term. But by the same token, from where I sit, we see all shapes and sizes of formats. While everybody was was thinking, you know, the, the returnable series is is the new new thing. Now, limited is, is back uh, from where we sit. Even sort of a series of films with recurring characters, say three 90-minute films per year with a recurring character, it, it is now a thing, but I think big and shiny and and light is certainly something of the moment. If that sort of transcends over the next years, we'll see. Yeah, and definitely made for movies are back in a big way. You know, made for streaming films, romantic comedies, family friendly. That's suddenly all back. It's like 1998 all over again. Um, and Anna, I just wanted to quickly ask you. You obviously recently left Yes Studios. I just wondered what you're what you're working on currently and what's next. It's like the question on everybody's mind. I get asked that like three times a day and it's great and, and people care and I, I love that. Um, I'm officially ending at the end of the month so still a little bit uh, to go and then you know I'm, I'm going to be producing 
doing what I do in, you know, a new, in new surroundings. I'm trying not to be like overly coy or mysterious. It's just really, it's, this is what I do. I've grown up in this industry. I love it. I love the storytelling. I love the business stealings. And I think there's a lot more to be done, especially on the trajectory of, of content and tech and content and financing, which is becoming much more important in our day-to-day lives than we would have thought before. But, um, you know, there's a lot of life changes. I'm actually moving to Berlin this summer to live with my family. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on. It'll be oh, fun. Amazing. It's exciting. Yeah. Doing what we do, especially after the last you know, two years. Um, I, I think we've proven a, we can work from anywhere and be, you know, certainly content can be placed anywhere. So it's fine with me and I like Berlin. So why not? Um, and then Al, I've just got one quick question for you. You've obviously kind of expanded square one, which started out in distribution and then production, and then you've launched an audio division. And I just wondered if you've got any plans to launch yeah. any new arms or branches. No, I, I think for, for now we're actually focused very much on the distribution, but particularly the, the production business, the unlimited space that we, launched early in the year, we're um, focusing our attention on branded content. The audio we've put on hold for now. There are only 24 hours in the day. (laughs) That is what it is. Because by the way, as we've learned today, everything takes time. Nothing is easy and you have to focus. And work with friends. There you go. And work with friends. (laughs) Al Montianu and Dana Stern speaking with Ruth Laws. Coconuts TV is the Thailand and Singapore-based production arm of Southeast Asian digital publisher Coconuts Media, founded and run by Chief Executive Byron Perry, whose exec-produced shows in the region for the likes of Discovery, MTV and Malaysian streamer iFlix. The latter's marijuana-themed docuseries Highland was picked up by Netflix and Perry is pushing ahead with plans to further expand the company's slate of premium documentaries with a new true crime series in the works. He spoke to Ruth Laws about these moves and working with private equity to fund programming. We are a publisher and a production house here in Southeast Asia with offices in Singapore, Bangkok, and Hong Kong. We started as a local city blog uh, for Bangkok and then expanded to seven other cities in Asia, which are Hong Kong, Singapore, Manila, Jakarta, Bali, Yangon, and KL. Currently, we reach about one to two million unique visitors per month on our website with our written articles about those cities. Uh, And then we have our Coconuts TV brand, which is our video mainly focused on documentary production house. We've produced docu-series and documentaries that we've sold to Netflix, Discovery Channel, MTV, and that's really a big part of what we're doing currently for monetization is producing premium documentary content for streamers and TV. So Coconuts Media is a platform that's got news articles. Does the content that you produce also go on Coconuts or you you tend to sell it elsewhere? The videos that we produce, occasionally we release them on Facebook and YouTube. But mostly we're focused on producing premium stuff that we would aim to sell elsewhere these days. And do you have any plans to launch your own sort of streamer or direct-to-consumer platform? No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Not at the moment. It's too expensive. And um, yeah, you know, we're happy to be a production house. I think reaching the audience that we do, a few million people with written content is a lot easier than building an audience with a custom, you know, video streaming platform. 
And so right now we're content to be a production house in terms of the way that we produce video and where we release it. Um, and when did you actually launch the, the TV arm? We launched that in 2013 and we launched Coconuts Bangkok, the first uh, iteration of Coconuts in 2011. So it was soon thereafter. It started as a YouTube channel and we still have our channel. We're not as active on it as we were a few years ago because again, we're mainly focused on producing premium stuff for, for streamers. Did you, did you grow from a sort of a written platform to TV production? Was that always part of the game plan? It wasn't necessarily always part of the game plan, but it sort of came naturally with the addition of actually a key staff member at the time who was a multimedia producer and video producer. So when we began, we really... It was like all of the videos that we would do would do were offshoots of our written articles. We'd do a written article and we'd say, hey, this is great to produce a video because it's visually wonderful or for you know, any reason. And we go and produce a video on that thing, um, generally like a short documentary. So one of our most popular early videos, for example, was just a short doc on um, these guys in Bangkok who dress up like uh, cholos, the Mexican-American style of dress and sort of oftentimes gang related culture of Los Angeles. And it was a really funny and popular video because it was just uh, very unusual and an untold story about these guys who have kind of become obsessed with this subculture, a continent away. Um, and so, yeah, we were always looking for quirky, interesting underground stories like that. Um, and where is the like the production um, office based in Southeast Asia? Or do you have several? Uh, here in Singapore and in Bangkok. That's where we have um, all of our producers and post-production folks. And why did you pick those two um, places specifically? Those are actually just our biggest hubs of staff and operations and commercial activity. Singapore, we have a slightly smaller office with about 10 to 15 people. In Bangkok, we have about 30. And so uh, it was a natural place to have our, our production houses in those in those places. Singapore is really the biggest hub probably of entertainment in Southeast Asia, but Thailand is really big too. And probably the place where there's more interesting stories to actually shoot so yeah that's why we we chose those places i actually did i think that's why i originally contacted you i, I did a feature about um thailand what what what's your take on it as being a kind of next major hub of production I, I'm, I'm guessing you agree having based yourself there and um, but what does the country offer yeah i mean it's first of all just the country itself is an incredibly vibrant beautiful amazing cult, uh, country with amazing culture so what we're mainly focused on shooting there is factual content telling the stories of that place. Um, one thing we are working on, for example, right now is a true crime docuseries about a high profile crime that I can't share too much more on, but that's shot in Thailand. It is uh, relatively affordable to shoot in opposed, uh, as opposed to places like Singapore, or certainly the US or the UK. So that is an advantage of shooting in Thailand. It has a really wide range of topography and locations from the jungle to the big city, to the beach, to the mountains. So so uh, yeah, I definitely believe Thailand has a lot to offer in terms of both being a place to shoot and produce and in terms of the content that they're producing there themselves. I think there are really uh, a lot of creativity coming out of Thailand that is going to get more and more popular globally, I think for sure. 
And you've obviously mentioned that uh, Coconuts TV it produces premium programming and you mentioned there's some factual series. Are there any sort of specific genres within that that you, you specialize in? Definitely true crime. A story will oftentimes be, um, you know, begin as a series of articles about something that happened and then we're able to uh, turn it into a true crime series as we've done with the one that we're currently working on. We also love food. So in 2020, I think it was, we raised a little bit, or we, we partnered with a private equity firm to produce a slate of pilots that we produced and are now in the process of getting picked up by streamers and broadcast TV channels. And so one of them was a food-related show, which is called Thai Food 101, which is basically like a dish-by-dish dish ode and introduction to Thai food that can be accessible for both an expert who knows everything about Thai food, that person would still like it, and someone who doesn't know anything is going to learn a lot. So that's an example of a type of food show that we do. We're getting a little bit more into reality, and we did produce some reality pilots. One of them is called Bangkok Queen, which is starring a high-profile drag queen from Bangkok. Uh, and it's about her crazy life with her friends who are all drag queens. She actually was the villain kind of host on Drag Race Thailand. Her name's uh, Panjana Heel, so that's more of a reality format. But yeah, probably we focus above all on super factual, more documentary style stuff what, and, and kind of more untold stories, which oftentimes are crime or food. And it's always unscripted. Uh, do you have any scripted projects in development or is that an area you'd, you'd look to grow into? No, we don't have any in development, but yes, we are somewhat interested and we've begun talking uh, about that. Vim, who is our head of production, has experience working on on scripted projects and obviously that's booming as well so yeah i think that's something that we would definitely consider and certainly especially if it's you know based off a docuseries or a series of articles kind of um, based on true life but scripted i think that's something that would be a natural fit for us and you mentioned earlier that you're working on a Thai true crime docuseries. Um, do you have any other examples of, of docuseries that you're um, working on? And, and how do you make true crime in particular stand out when it's such a overcrowded market? I think really true crime, like so much docu content, above all, it's about the story. And the story just has to be really eye-catching and stick out. You know, I don't think the way that you do it necessarily is going to matter as much as just the actual story being incredibly compelling. So that's what we really look for above all is, you know, amazing stories that we have special access to, or obviously like exclusive access to. And then we take it from there. One thing we are experimenting with in the, in the docuseries that we're, well, not experimenting with, we're doing it, but it's a bit more unusual, although getting more popular is reenactments. Um, so we are going to be doing reenactments and we're um, hiring normal people people to play the the people in the reenactments i.e not actors so people who are very similar to the to the real people who did the things that we're covering and so we think that that has worked well from what we've seen so far we're not done but um we think that it brings a real grittiness and realness if you kind of use real people from the same background as what they're reenacting so yeah those are the things some of the things we're, we're working on but yeah i guess i can't emphasize enough that i think it lives or dies by the exclusivity 
beauty and the uniqueness of the story. Um, And are there any shows on your development slate that you can tell me about? Really, we're just focused on this big true crime docuseries um, right now and looking to continue pushing the pilots that we produced over the last year to get them, you know, sold and greenlit into full shows. You mentioned that you sell to broadcasters and streamers. Who have you sold to and what territories do you tend to sell into? Usually it's actually mainly been Asia focused territories. The first deal that we did, our first entree into producing for streamers was actually with Netflix, where we licensed a docuseries that we were already working on to them, not as a Netflix original, but it is currently still on Netflix. And it's, I believe, viewable globally. So they they bought it out globally. That's a docuseries about marijuana legalization in Thailand. Um, It's from 2017. So yeah, that was kind of what really um, got us thinking that this could be a business uh, revenue stream for us and that we could do that more often. And so since then, we've done a feature, well, a 48 minute documentary for Discovery, which was for Discovery Asia. And so that was Asia territories, as well as a docuseries for MTV Asia about hip hop and the rise of hip hop in Asia. We've also done some smaller productions for Media Corp, which is the Singapore main, actually semi government owned broadcaster here in um, Singapore. So, yeah, aside from the, the Netflix first series that we sold, lately it's been more. Asia-focused uh, deals that we've been doing, but with the current true crime docuseries we're working on, that's absolutely, we wouldn't sell that to Asia only. It's made for a global audience. It's much bigger budget than things that we've done previously. And the funding is from this private equity firm. Um, and so that absolutely we're looking to sell globally. Right. Um, and are you open to co-productions? Yes. Basically the, the pilots that we produced with the private equity firm were co-productions in that we share in the uh, proceeds from uh, any any proceeds that they generate. And the main thing that we brought to the table was the actual stories and the production and the co-producer brought um, the funds. Do you think that, um, I've written just uh, quite a few articles about it, that sort of private equity funding is the future of um, financing productions and TV shows? And how has your experience been working with a private equity firm? I think it's been great. So far, it's been, been fantastic, you know, and um, I've read a bit and I'm aware of the rise of private equity investing in and owning, uh, you know, entertainment properties. I think that they bring a level of, you know, financial skill that sometimes is missing from the entertainment industry and oftentimes just simply bring the money to allow um, ideas to be made. And so, um, yeah, so far, the, the experience has been great. And I really, you know, I think it's a good thing for sure. Um, obviously they're profit oriented, but I think that that is a good thing because there's a lot of clarity that that brings when you are focused on very clearly making money and having some financial discipline from the beginning. I suppose it's the blend of the creative and the business. <laughs> which Yeah, um, basically if they stay out of the creative, I think that's, the, <laughs> which they generally do, you know, at least in my experience, because that's not their expertise. So as long as they understand what their expertise is, which is the financing side and they find good creatives and trust them. And I think it can work really well. So um, when it comes to distribution, do you have your own um, sort of in-house distribution team who sells all your productions or do you um, license those to a distributor? We generally just do things ourselves. But again, the main partnership that we have right now is, is with this private equity firm that does have its own distribution capabilities. So yeah, we're really kind of ramping things up currently and are open 
open to working with, you know, other distributors as well. Excellent. Um, and then, sorry, this is quite a broad question, but what are your sort of plans and priorities for the next three years? Well, we really want to sell this true crime docuseries and have it be as big of a hit as possible, which I really think it has the potential to be because the story is just dynamite. And when that happens, we want to basically do a lot more productions like this and um, not only true crime, but again, food, reality, um, travel. Uh, So I definitely plan on the production of premium factual content for us at Coconuts to be a super key part of our future over the next three years. Additionally, just looking to continue the success that we've had with the written content on Coconuts, uh, continue producing stories that win awards and reach big audiences. And one thing we're really focused on right now, for example, is exclusivity and totally original stories that you can't get anywhere else. And that obviously aligns really well with the documentaries that those can turn into documentaries and docuseries. The last thing I'd say, which we haven't discussed much, is we have an in-house creative agency. And so looking to continue to um, grow that business too, working with mainly um, big brands to produce advertising and content for them. So yeah, those are really kind of the trifecta for us. The editorial, which is a written content, Coconuts TV video, and then Grove, which is our in-house creative agency, looking to continue to grow that as well. Um, and is there any crossover between the, the TV arm and the creative agency? Have you ever thought about having a production that's funded by branding, like a, like a, like a TV production rather than like an advert? We are absolutely looking to do productions like that. And we've had some discussions like that, talking to a big brand. It's basically a three way deal whereby the brand funds the production we produce it but it appears on a tv channel or a streamer but yeah we haven't done that yet but there absolutely is a lot of collaboration crossover between grove the in-house agency and coconuts tv because grove doesn't have any video production capabilities (laughs) so anything they do that requires video is basically outsourced within the same company to a different department which is coconuts tv so that's another big thing that coconuts tv does in addition to producing these factual docuseries, it's producing branded content, even TV commercial level for clients of Grove, which are, again, entirely brands. Byron Perry, speaking with Ruth Laws. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.